Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly technology report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a partnership aimed at improving the cybersecurity of America's and allied unmanned systems. But first, joining us is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral, who is the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and a Cyber Solarium 2.0 Executive Director. Mark, thanks so very much for joining us, especially on back-to-back weeks like this. Fago, it's a real pleasure to be here again. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, last week, you joined us to talk about uh, China's uh, infiltration of American uh, infrastructure, military and commercial that uh, the United States would rely on to respond uh, to uh, a crisis in the Indo-Pacific, especially one caused by China over Taiwan. Some great uh, reporting um, just a couple of days ago in the Washington Post by Ellen Nakashima, one of the nation's top national security and indeed top cyber uh, reporters, where she talks about a, a massive breach of Japan's uh, defense uh, networks uh, at the hands of the Chinese that the United States uh, discovered in 2022. General uh, Paul uh, Nakasone, at the time, uh, the National Security uh, Agency Director and the Cybercom Commander, as well as Matt Pottinger, Deputy National Security Advisor, uh, visited Japan to drive home the uh, magnitude uh, of uh, the breach. Um, and uh, you know, the, the article details some of the concerns about the pace at which uh, the Japanese responded. I want to get to that in a, in a minute. But how important, given uh, what an important ally, strategic partner Japan is, how significant is a breach uh, like this, which has been labeled the, the largest ever in Japanese history? Well, look, anytime they penetrate your, you know, apparently penetrate your defense net, your defense department, and in this case, even classified networks, that's a serious breach. And that's the implication in this reporting. And I can only go by Ellen Nakashima's excellent reporting in the Washington Post uh, earlier this week. So what I would say is, if there's a penetration of a defense network, and if there's a penetration of a classified network, then obviously important planning documents, capability documents, even sometimes bilateral documents can be at, at, uh, made vulnerable or be put at risk. So it's a serious issue because Japan is such a close partner on whom we rely for so much. She explains, and as, as you just hinted, I mean, do we know the magnitude of uh, what was lost, right? I mean, the forensics of this is always very important to understand what it is the adversary had access to. At this point, uh, whether in that story or through uh, the friends that you have across the enterprise, do we have a sense on what it is that was compromised at this point? Well, as you can tell from the story, they're not given the specifics, but they're clearly implying important things were placed at risk. And there's a little bit of a caveat at the end about whether we don't know for sure what was grabbed. I will just tell you, uh, judging by China's infiltration of OPM, they were pretty good, you know, 24 million records later. So what I'll say is if the penetration's an accurate description and the risk is an accurate description, then the consequences were probably pretty serious. For anybody in the audience that doesn't know, the United States shares uh, many cutting-edge weapon systems also, whether it's the Aegis combat system, uh, air and missile uh, defenses, combat aircraft, the F-35, right? I mean, it's a very, very long list that goes beyond 
the extraordinary nature of intelligence sharing between the two countries uh, as uh, well. One of the underlying messages, Mark, in the piece is a little bit of frustration at the pace with which the, the Japanese were responding uh, to uh, the persistent threat, right? I mean, so not only was the first breach in 2020, there was another uh, in 2021 uh, that uh, required uh, the United States to sort of engage. And, and that was more on the Biden administration's watch um, that has made cybersecurity one of its watchwords and central uh, tenants. Talk to us about the second breach and the challenges in ejecting such a persistent threat uh, from networks, right? I mean, the joint staff was compromised by the Russians for a while. There were Chinese that were in other parts of the government over protracted periods of time. What was the second breach? And why is it so hard to get rid of a persistent threat like this from networks once they install themselves? Well, uh, that's a lot of points to that question, all good. Uh, So let me unpack that. First, I wanna be careful. Um, Japan is a very close ally. I think they're working hard to remediate these issues. They've, in the time frame since this happened or while it was happening, they created a cyber command equivalent with 24-7 monitoring. They began third-party testing. Um, they've allowed cyber command to review the results of that assessment. Um, you know, and you know, we we live in a glass house here. I mean, we had solar winds, and then 18 months later, we had, you know, where 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 people were reading cabinet level. Russians were reading, reading cabinet level emails. And then we had uh, um, a, chi- a Microsoft hack that is attributed to China where they were, re- again, reading cabinet level emails. So, you know, the United States is in no position to lecture on a, a, a persistent inability to protect your federal networks. We are absolutely in a glass house on this. Now, having said that, classified systems are different. We try to maintain a standard of, 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 of uh, a zero defect standard there uh, with no penetration. and and it's frustrating that if they got back in. Now, your question about how difficult is it to get rid of a persistent threat? It's very difficult because they put hooks and malware and you know and uh, and Trojan horses so they can re-enter the system at a later date. So it really takes a lot to sanitize them. And um, and these are a large number of networks. This is a very large military, the second probably most capable military in the world. Uh, you know, but you know, in the of our Western allies. Yeah, you know, not not got in China and Russia, you know, behind the United States, the second most right. uh, comprehensive military. So that's a lot of networks. And as you said, a lot of classified systems, you know, between Aegis, which has had a security problem in, in Japan in the in the dis- distant past and right. F-35 and other systems. My point on this is it's hard. Um, I think they're working on it. We should give them credit for working on it, but continue to hold them accountable to get this system completely sanitized and and. Um, and cleared for, for high-level information sharing. But again, the United States has to be slightly careful here. We have absolutely had a you know, trail of tears of problems over the last um, two decades in our own federal networks. Um, let me ask you the delicate question uh, of how the United States can help its allies uh, and partners. Uh, in the article, there was a discussion of the national security agencies, uh, Tiger teams that they send around the country. Some nations are very willing to accept that help, whether it's Ukraine, uh, I think Lithuania uh, was mentioned, and, and a number of allies and partners that we've worked uh, with. What, what are the, the ways the United States can most successfully, Mark, work with allies and partners uh, because every nation is sovereign, every nation has its own concerns. What are what are the right ways to work with those allies and partners uh, that want to work with us, want to accept our help, even if they don't want to let us have the kind of access to their networks that we might 
want. Now, that's a great point. And look, I, here, you know, what, what was offered was probably hunt forward operations, which is what we do with a lot of our allies and partners. But to be clear, not with our kind of high end, you know, highly networked, you know, highly, uh, you know, cyber integrated economies like Japan, Israel, uh, United Kingdom, France, Germany, those countries don't allow us in either for hunt forward operations. So I think the NSA and General Nakasone did a great job negotiating what he probably ended up with there, which sounds like his third party assessment that was kind of given direction of what to look for, what to look at by a joint U.S., you know, Japanese assessment team, and then reviewed the results of it, you know, to try to get further guidance and increased technical cooperation, increased information sharing about threat signals, things like that you know, known tools used by the adversary. So I kind of think that mix of third-party assessment heavily um, coached and observed along with increased technical advice was really a very good deal got by uh, General Nakasone and his team and, and Newberg and her team during their visits. And so I think that's exactly where we should have ended with this kind of uh, partner. So I think that part of the story is a good news story for how the U.S., builds partner capacity among a high-end partner under severe stress. You have an enormous amount of experience with Japan and in the in the uh, Indo-Pacific, uh, you were the Indo-Pacific Command's J3, uh, and uh, as uh, a naval officer, spent a lot of time in, in that neighborhood and indeed uh, stationed in, in Japan. Um, Japan's a very proud nation. Does a disclosure like this of a news story showing up uh, in an American newspaper and laying things out the way it does end up being potentially problematic for an important alliance that's been getting ever closer literally by the day? So let me break that up into two things. One, there is an absolute reason why we have to insist on this high-level security because not only do we need in a, in a crisis or contingency, Japan's forces to be fully capable and available um, so they have to have control over their networks. We need Japan's forces. But in addition, we have a significant number of U.S. forces forward stationed in Japan that are also critical to the opening hours of any crisis or, or weeks of any crisis or contingency. So that's a, you know, that's a double down kind of effect there where we absolutely have to have secure networks available in our close ally, Japan. Now, the issue of, you know, the embarrassment surrounding this, I, you know, this story did leak out a little bit back in April 2021. There was a, some snippets about the story. Obviously, the complexity of the issue um, comes out now. It was three years ago. I think that gives the people in power right now a little bit of standoff distance from it. You know, there have been changes in leadership and, and power. Um, but, I, you know, I would say if you ask, um, if you ask, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the Japanese that if, you know, if you, if you asked, if you went back and, and spoke to Prime Minister Abe three years ago, he would have said, this is exactly the kind of cooperation and support we need from the United States. What happened after this incident? He recognized there were cybersecurity challenges. He'd worked for 10 years to fix their own security clearance laws. So I think they knew at a very senior level, they had a challenge. I don't think they ever liked to read a story like this in the Washington Post but it's better that it's three years old and reflects some of the improvements they can turn to their cyber command, turn to the work they've done with the United States and say, look, we're tackling this issue. We're working it. It's going to take a little bit more to get, get all this done. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to what next steps need to be. 
Uh, right. I mean, you talked about uh, accountability and why the United States has to insist that this happens. I think the Japanese are uh, particularly concerned about the Chinese and have been doing everything they can to stand up, including making some constitutional changes uh, to be able to do that. What are, what are the next steps um, that the United States uh, and Japan need to be taking? Right. I mean, in the wake of the breaches that you and I discussed last week, um, what are the steps individually and collectively we all need to be be taking on this because it is a persistent adversary it has considerable resources and it's methodical right what's what's the right approach here so this is challenging because i look i know we just had something that makes us uncomfortable we don't like that their classified networks may have been penetrated but we have to say to ourselves look they are an important ally they're not somebody we can ignore or leave by the wayside or set aside doing classified work we're going to have to help them continue to sanitize their networks, uh, continue to share information. We need to increase their access to threat information, you know, of what attack signals look like so they can look for them better. Um, we clearly have to make sure those are on controlled networks that we know are secure. But, you know, at some point, you know, Japan needs to have what we call 5i, you know, the U.S., Australia, U.K., Canada, New Zealand, level of access to threat information because they are absolutely after taiwan target set number two of china we're probably target set number three although all three of us are at a very high level so we absolutely need to help them we need to provide this assistance and again i think general nakasone and ann newberger cut the right deal three you know three years ago and two years ago that we're on the right track and we just need to keep working it and look they're an important ally to us an important partner they need to have secure networks so that their forces can move and our forces can move. World wars have pivoted on actually relatively small slivers of information that are known. Uh, and in this case, the Chinese are exfiltrating information by the terabytes. And the degree of it is so massive that as a friend of mine in the business uh, joked with me once, you know, it's like people are reading, our, our, you know, the Chinese are reading our mail. He's like, they don't, they don't need to read our mail anymore. They pretty much know what's going on, which is a terrifying revelation to make. A at what point, Mark, does it almost not matter? Like, you know, if you know in full the capabilities of the Aegis system, if you know in full the capabilities of our defensive networks, if you know what our ammunition stores are like, what our war plans are like, I mean, at, at what point does it not matter anymore? You know, I'm not trying to make a case for not well, stopping it, right? But at, at some point, does it, are they no longer reading our mail and they actually sort of are like, yeah, I mean, I know enough. I'll keep trying to read it, but. I mean, you're right. For the historians out there, you can think back to understanding what Alpha Foxtrot was in Japanese planning allowed us to know that Midway was the target because we'd done some code breaking, you know, so clearly small pieces of information are critical to, you know, so that Nimitz could position his forces properly and, and, you know, destroy the you know, Japanese carrier fleet. Um, so I agree completely that you do not want the adversary reading, you know, inside your networks. There's just, there's no, there's no like story where you can tell that says, well, they're in our networks, but it worked out okay. You know, um, you know, this is something we have to tackle. Um, and, and I really appreciate, you know, I, I appreciate that we have to do that. I just think it's one of these things where we're going to have to push them out of our networks and the Chinese are persistent. I mean, I think the size of their offensive, you know, force, their cyber operating force, mm -hmm. their cough, you know, the size of their cyber operating force, their cough 
is, you know, literally four or five, maybe even more times that of ours. That doesn't mean they're four or five times more capable because, you know, we have uh, potentially have better operators and maybe better tools and exploits, but they still, there's a, there's a quantity to them that probably puts a lot of pressure on our allies like Taiwan and Japan. Um, and certainly puts pressure on us uh, that we're going to have to continue to counter this, um, this, uh, this cyber, this cyber attack that's happening below the level of war, you know, in the gray zone here, in hybrid warfare before combat. Uh, Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, always terrific having you on the program. Thanks for being so generous with your time, especially since you're on travel this week. Thank you, Vago. And joining us now is Tobias Whitney, the Vice President of Strategy and Policy at Information Security Firm, Fortress Information Security. Tobias, thanks very much for joining us and great to have you back on the program. Oh, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for the shot to get back on here. appreciate it. Uh, last year, you and Michael Robbins of AUVSI or the Association for Uncrewed Vehicle Systems International, uh, having uh, just recently uh, rebranded, uh, discussed your partnership to improve cybersecurity for uncrewed uh, systems central to that effort uh, is to improve um, cybersecurity around uncrewed systems. And your focus was to create types of certifications needed to do uh, just that. You're rolling those out now. Walk us through what they are and what they mean. It's been a great opportunity uh, and it's been a great partnership to work with AUVSI uh, and AUVSI and Fortress recognize that, uh, that, that the cybersecurity risk of various industries increased. We have different geopolitical risks that are uh, impacting specifically uh, the drone industry. Uh, we thought that it was a, a responsive and responsible thing to do uh, to create a set, a set of cybersecurity frameworks uh, for the drone manufacturers in this industry to ultimately abide by and attest to, uh, to demonstrate that they're meeting industry best practices. Uh, so what we set off to do uh, a little bit over a year, year ago, as you, as you mentioned, uh, is to identify uh, a bevy of industry cybersecurity rules and regulations and best practices uh, and pull them all together into a drone-specific uh, set of guidelines for adoption uh, by, by, by the drone industry. So what we ended up doing is you know, we work with electric power organizations, oil and gas, DOD, uh, and other, other critical infrastructure sectors to understand what their cybersecurity policies and regulations um, are, uh, because we recognize that it was going to be important that any of the drone manufacturers would reflect those standards that many of their customers require. The last thing that we wanted uh, was for a, you know, say, say an energy company uh, to, to buy a particular UAS and, uh, and have that particular technology be used on, say, transmission or generation infrastructure doing flyovers and, and um, uh, other types of condition-based monitoring uh, to not recognize uh, those rules in cybersecurity regulations that are appropriate for that particular industry. Uh, so we included um, best practices from DHS, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, critical infrastructure protection standards, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, probably over a dozen additional standards uh, to put together something that we ultimately um, derive uh, the name Green UAS, uh, which stands for, uh, which is also built uh, in, in relation to the Blue UAS program uh, that was uh, rolled out by uh, the, Department, the Department of Defense uh, a little bit over two and a half years ago. So since we started, uh, we have over 15 uh, manufacturers that have initiated the, the, the process to become certified to the Green UAS um, set of drone industry best practices. Uh, and we're going to be excited uh, 
to to announce in the next couple months all those organizations that have passed their certification um, and then start um, communicating to industry, uh, especially the buying community, that those that uh, purchase drones, um, why this is a value and how this really helps them uh, be able to purchase these technologies with confidence. Um, this is uh, a broad-based uh, effort, obviously, because unmanned or uncrewed systems uh, are uh, you, you know, we're on the cusp of um, uh, them being used for all manner, right? I mean, well beyond just sort of military applications. And almost daily, there's uh, another major cyber penetration, right? At the top of the show, we were talking about how China has penetrated Japan's uh, systems with uh, Mark uh, Montgomery, uh, John Francesco, formerly of your team, now with Applied AI Company, uh, joined us uh, to talk a little bit about uh, some of the Chinese penetrations of infrastructure that you guys have been focused on uh, for some time as well. Um, talk to us, you know, remind the audience why this is so important, particularly uh, now uh, from both an innovation as well as a security standpoint. Well, well several years ago, uh, the Chinese government, government uh, really identified the need for, uh, for drones and for, for, for UAS technology uh, and subsidized, uh, significantly subsidized the R&D and development uh, and ultimate rollout of certain technologies across the globe. So, um, for all intents and purposes, uh, many U.S. or domestic organizations invested significant dollars in Chinese technologies. Um, roughly, uh, as of last year, roughly 80 percent uh, of the uh, law enforcement purchases of drones um, went to Chinese sourced uh, manufactured uh, technologies. Uh, and not only were they associated with, with Chinese technologies, those same companies that they purchased these technologies from uh, subsequently became uh, banned, banned organizations as it relates to the U.S. Department of Commerce, um, which means that, that there is strong concern, strong risks, risk uh, tied to utilizing these technologies with, um, with potential direct relationships to uh, to. Um, uh, to, to China and their ability to monitor monitor critical infrastructure. Uh, so uh, as a result, um, you know, what a lot of the U.S. Uh, and domestic manufacturers um, are really trying to do is not only um, sure up their security, but sure up their supply chains to make sure that they're not overwhelmingly dependent on components uh, that come from potentially adversarial nations that might utilize, say, the, the Chinese cloud service provider infrastructure uh, and thereby potentially allowing for U.S. adversaries uh, to potentially have access to uh, the sensitive information uh, that many of these uh, drone technologies, especially from a surveillance perspective, uh, would have the ability to access. So, uh, so much of what we've done in the Green UAS program is to require uh, that any of the components that uh, that make up a particular manufactured drone uh, cannot be sourced, and any of the critical components cannot be sourced from China or Russia or, or any um, country adversarial to the United States. We have a process uh, to uh, identify and review the software and hardware bill of materials um, that uh, are associated with that technology. We, uh, we do a hands-on um, analysis of where uh, each one of those components um, are, uh, are derived from um, and also any potential vulnerabilities vulnerabilities associated um, uh, with those systems. So, so frankly uh, speaking, the, the threat of Chinese source technology is a significant concern uh, within the drone industry and, and the Green UAS program uh, does a lot to uh, ensure that those that are purchasing these technologies have every assurance uh, that uh, there's not a, 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 a reliance 
uh, on these technologies unnecessarily. So, uh, so that's a lot of what Green UES does. Um, what are the other fields where this sort of certification approach uh, can work on as well, right? I mean, almost every element of society is increasingly under siege. It's not just ransomware attacks, right? But I mean, advanced persistent threats, uh, malware uh, and the like. What, what are, right? I mean, what, what it is you guys are pioneering, where else can it be applied beyond well, current systems? No, no, it's a great, great question. I, I think uh, there, there can be um, obvious locations and types of technologies where uh, this type of a certification process could exist. Uh, one of the things I, I, I'd warn against, though, and you know, I, I've had a lot of experience in managing cybersecurity regulations, and, um, and with my previous experience uh, at NERC, North American Electric Liability Corporation, is that you design cybersecurity controls, standards, and best practices as specifically as you can as you can to mitigate a specific use case or specific threat that is applicable to a industry, to not try to boil the ocean. Um, you know, if you get too generic, if you get too, um, if, if the controls and the security best practices uh, are too broadly identified and then broadly adopted, you may not necessarily get the, the, the security outcomes that you want of a, particular, um, of a particular industry. So, you know, what we're thinking about is, you know, especially those evolving, um, those new dynamic evolving uh, industries, you know, we don't want to necessarily get the way of innovation. Uh, we don't want to be so heavy handed that we're not getting the best of breed technologies uh, available for, for industry to purchase. But many times when you see this level of innovation, we see new technologies get rolled into the market. Um, security is an afterthought. And we want to make sure that um, as technologies and as these industries mature and grow, that security is one of those things that just is um, part and parcel to everything that is done within, within that particular sector. So, you know, some of the examples that we're looking at potentially could be, uh, say, the distribution uh, infrastructure uh, of, of electric power. Uh, we've seen quite a bit of an investment in making sure that, you know, the meters uh, associated with uh, homes and neighborhoods are smart. We've seen that in years past with smart grid. Uh, we've also seen um, the advancement of just, uh, distribution, uh, distributed energy resources, DER, uh, as a, a way to allow for um, various sectors to be more electrified, to, to, to reduce some of their uh, dependence on, on fossil fuels and leveraging technologies such as microgrids um, and solar energy and solar energy storage, uh, wind storage, things of that nature, that allow for, um, again, a min minimized uh, uh, investment in, in, in fossil fossil fuel technologies. So we're looking at potentially identifying certifications and controls that can help mitigate uh, risks at, at that level of the grid, but not just you know grid technologies, where there's other types of um, infrastructure and, and critical infrastructure sectors that are adopting this. Uh, we've seen some advancements uh, in the healthcare industry with uh, medical devices. Um, we're starting to have more of a dialogue and recognizing there's there's opportunities in telecommunications infrastructure. Uh, so there's many, many different um, verticals and sub-verticals that we can focus on. But I think the biggest takeaway here is to be uh, as specific as you can to identify security best practices that meets a particular technology type or subsector, not trying to boil, boil the ocean uh, with security controls. Well, uh, let me uh, take you to uh, two other questions because uh, I want to end it because uh, you guys are uh, sponsoring a major event uh, in uh, Leesburg. But first, I want to get your sense. Um, 
without being too pointed about this, right? I mean, a criticism that's directed at DOD uh, is uh, that the military gets hardware, but not software and gets cyber even less, uh, right? I mean, uh, the folks at Andrew have made the case, hey, we're, we're in hardware in part because the government doesn't know how to buy uh, software. Is, is this case different given the link between cybersecurity and the hardware is so immediately demonstrable? Well, if you look at a UAS or drone technology, uh, it is uh, a, a highly intelligent uh, device or appliance. And the hardware and software have to work together in unison. Uh, you can't separate the, the hardware functionality, uh, the, the capabilities of the physical act of flying a drone and having that be uh, ultimately remotely uh, uh, accessible and being able to control the drone remotely. And also the AI, the, the intelligence, the autonomous uh, capability within the software for, for that particular system to behave in a manner uh, that's safe and reliable. There's a tremendous amount of coordination of cybersecurity and, and software uh, development practices that go into that. So, uh, so all intents and purposes, uh, you know, UA, uh, UAVs and, and, and drone technologies are a very good uh, example that, you know, having that, that firm handshake, making sure that, yes, you are addressing the very best uh, in terms of security of the hardware and the appliance, um, but the software and the intelligence, the autonomy and the AI behind that is also something that is of, of paramount importance. And, and that's a lot of again, what we're doing uh, with the Green UAS certification program. Uh, and your uh, big event that you guys uh, are doing uh, in uh, Leesburg at the end of the month. August 22nd, we're going to have an opportunity to put many of the technologies that have gone through the Green UAS certification on display. Uh, they'll have the opportunity for uh, purchasers and those that are interested uh, in investing uh, in these types of secure drone technologies to see these, uh, these systems in flight, functional, uh, performing uh, various maneuvers, but also have a very good understanding uh, of what the Green UAS uh, cybersecurity certification is all about. Uh, we're providing uh, and having have um, commitments from federal law enforcement, lo local law enforcement. Uh, many uh, federal agencies will be in attendance. Uh, many critical infrastructure asset owner owners and oil and gas, electric power uh, will be in attendance. And again, it's just a great opportunity to really um, have uh, hands-on uh, visibility uh, into these drone technologies to understand the security and the performance capabilities that these systems bring, bring to the table. Uh, so we, we look to uh, have as many people attend the, at, the, at the Elevate uh, facility in Leesburg on August, uh, August 22nd. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free uh, to come to um, uh, AUVSI site, AUVSI.org, uh, or FortressInfoSec.com. But uh, we're looking forward to have as many, many attendees that are uh, participating in that as possible. So uh, looking forward to that. Uh, know it's going to be a worthwhile uh, event and uh, folks should uh, definitely be checking it out. Uh, Tobias, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Give my best to Mike uh, and uh, very best of luck uh, at the event and look forward to having you on uh, as well in the future to give us another update. Uh, I think it's very important work you guys are trying to do. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.